Welcome to Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedoms with George Christensen. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they might not choose socialism. We cannot afford to be so politically correct anymore conservative wine well g'day i'm george christensen your host here at this brand new podcast conservative one the podcast that is defending traditions and freedom and uh we're going to be interviewing quite a number of very interesting individuals uh people that are uh, experts in their field uh, people who are conservative activists and writers and obviously the name of the show conservative one means that this uh, whole podcast series is coming at life from a very conservative worldview and i'm joined actually today for our very first podcast of conservative one by a young man 35 years old uh he is a blogger he is also published writer in many different journals from the spectator magazine through to uh, the christian online magazine uh, makeda net also the conservative online journal cauldron pool a christian newspaper eternity news published his stuff his name is kurt malberg he runs a blog called cross and culture kurt uh, What's a young fellow like you doing uh, blogging all of this conservative stuff? Because, mate, I've, I've seen your work and it's great. Um, but tell us your background, how you got into this. Thanks so much, George. It's an honour to be with you, especially in your first uh, show. And this is a, a real privilege. And uh, thank you for that introduction as well. Well, I guess, yeah, young people aren't supposed to be conservative, are they? We're supposed to be uh, <laughs> liberal and, uh, I don't know, spouting whatever the media tells us we should be believing. But... I guess my background is I've grown up in the Adelaide Hills. Um, I've, uh, I grew up in the Lutheran Church and uh, I, I was a pastor in the Baptist Church for five years, a youth and young adults pastor. I've lived in Indonesia for a couple of years. I've travelled a fair bit. Um, I just married my beautiful American wife and so we've had some interesting challenges navigating, trying to have a wedding in Australia with a lot of American guests. And I heard about um, that. Yeah, so... We were caught um, yeah, up so with all the pandemic lockdown. We were, yeah, we were quite affected by it. Um, we're hoping to actually have a wedding in a year on our anniversary, even though we did have a very small ceremony and are officially married. But that's that's more recent stuff. In terms of, I guess, like my blogging journey and my my thinking and that sort of stuff, I I guess I've always liked to ask questions and I've always liked to challenge what I've been told, uh, not for its own sake, but because I want to think through things for myself and. I, though I grew up in the Lutheran church, I, I had plenty of doubts and skepticism uh, about faith, about the Bible, uh, about God. Um, but it was, a, I think it was a healthy one. It wasn't just railing against it. It was more wanting to understand things for myself and, and just not take easy answers. And so I, I remember being of that persuasion probably in my teenage years. And then as I got older, I, I guess I started to study a lot. I was a bit of a bookworm. I loved reading theology and philosophy. And then when I went on staff at uh, the church I was pastor of, I 
started preaching and I guess a lot of the ideas I had had to find feet on the ground in the real world, in the trenches with people who are, you know, struggling and, and going through highs and lows. And I think that probably rounded me off a little bit as well from maybe a harder conservative edge when I was younger. But when I was on staff at church, I would occasionally just think to myself, oh, that, was, that, that sermon might work as a blog. And so I just kind of post it. And it was really experimental, very few people reading, and I didn't really care whether people were reading it or not. But as time went on, I realized there's a lot of topics I wasn't you know, able to preach on um, because they were sort of in a niche area. And so I'd actually turn those into blogs. And that's really where the blog began. Mm. And I've just continued that on. And I guess my thinking has uh, somewhat evolved through the years, but still, I guess, you know, challenging the status quo, expressing my faith and how that intersects with culture. And, you know, any, any big topic that seems to come along that grabs my interest is generally where I'll go. And I've been, yeah, very privileged to have a reading in, you know, various you know, online journals. And, yeah, and I'm currently working with the Canberra Declaration, which is a, a conservative Christian, I guess, values institute, you could call it. Um, their main nice. focuses are things like right to life, religious freedom and the value of marriage and family. And, uh, yeah, so that's been an, an honour working with Warwick Marsh and the crew there. So that's been for about 18 months I've been working with them. And so some of my work with them has been able to cross over into my blog and vice versa. So, Can you tell listeners a little bit more about uh, the Canberra Declaration? Because that's uh, a very important thing that doesn't get too much attention. So explain what the Canberra Declaration actually is. That's true, yeah. And so with the Canberra Declaration, I guess the name is a little bit interesting. It actually follows on from the Manhattan Declaration. It was a statement that was written maybe 15 or so years ago uh, mm-hmm. by conservatives in America. Uh, A lot of them were pastors or Christian leaders, and essentially they saw the erosion of uh, faith values and particularly around things like right to life and marriage and freedom. And so they put together the Manhattan Declaration and then following in the footsteps of that or inspired by it, a group in Australia about 10 years ago uh, put together the Canberra Declaration. And if you just Google Canberra Declaration, you'll be able to go straight to our website and be able to read what that declaration says. It's not particularly long, but it's really lucid and gets uh, across these values of the fact that all of us are made in the image of God and therefore, you know, everyone has a right to life from life's start to natural end and that marriage and family are, you know, the cornerstone of of a healthy society and they should be valued and treasured. Um, Not to say that, you know, to be married is the ultimate life stage, but it is a good thing and it is something that governments, uh, you know, it's in their best interests to protect marriage and to protect families Uh, and to preserve these traditions that we've, you know, practiced for thousands of years. And while the Christian faith has been a a huge part of that, uh, I guess a lot of um, religious traditions have really strengthened, you know, our understanding of the family unit. And, you know, the Christian faith really does underpin those values. And so I guess pointing back to the scriptures um, and, yeah, just valuing the traditions that our culture has has given us. Um, And... Yeah, so that's kind of a bit of a background to what they do. There's, I think, about 80 or so thousand, maybe 85,000 people that have signed the Canberra Declaration to just express their support for these values, which is pretty awesome. And we have maybe 30 or so thousand people on our email list. But, yeah, just really encourage you to jump online and uh, have a read of that and sign it if you're all for it. And, um, yeah, just jump on our mailing list as well because we tend to send an email out every week or so just highlighting different current issues and ways that Christians can pray 
uh, and not just Christians either. There, you know, there are people who just are of a conservative bent who follow our work, or maybe they're from a, Juda- a Judeo background, um, Jewish background, yes. or um, just you know maybe they have more libertarian views, but they they share this value of our our strong traditional foundations in culture. So, yeah, oh, check it out. Fantastic. Well, I can mm. encourage that people to go to the Canberra Declaration and have a look into what that great organisation is doing. That. Um, both Warwick Marsh and Kurt, who's joining me here, uh, are, uh, are leading. So, mm-hmm. Kurt, you're obviously you've been a youth pastor. Mm-hmm. You have some greater understanding of theology then than uh, the average person. Can Hopefully. you tell us here? <laughs> can you can you tell us? Um, you know, it's one of those ultimate questions. Mm. Uh, the whole of the world is going through. A pretty scary time right now uh, with mm. this uh, coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, where is God amongst this? Yeah, it's a good question. And I mean, I joked before. You know, hopefully, I I know more than the average punter. But in honesty, you know, I guess I see it as a bit of a level playing field. I'm not particularly more qualified than anyone else. Uh, but I guess I have spent a lot of time thinking about faith and and spending time in Scripture and and in my relationship with God as well. So. Yeah, where is God? I guess ultimately the Christian's answer to any any question around where is God in the midst of a crisis is he's still on his throne. And that might sound simplistic, but gee, it's pretty good at steadying the ship when everything around you is is kind of shaking or where there's suffering or where there's a lot of confusion. It is really interesting, actually. The Bible does talk a lot about plagues and the Bible's obviously by our culture, often written off as a bit of an archaic book, but there's a lot in there about plagues and uh, and how they relate to God and our understanding of God. I think, you know, it's probably not a popular opinion to express that plague or suffering might be a way of God getting our attention, but throughout Scripture, that's often what God is doing when any sort of suffering occurs. It's not that He necessarily enjoys, you know, inflicting pain or suffering on people, but C.S. Lewis once said, God whispers to us through our pleasures, but he shouts to us through our pain. And pain is a megaphone for God to get the world's attention. And I'm paraphrasing, but something to that effect. And I really think it's true. I mean, I've just recently seen surveys coming out of America. I know they're probably a little bit more religious or Christian than Australia is, but nevertheless, it's probably representative of the Western world that I think almost 50% of Americans, regardless of what their background is, believe that this pandemic is a wake-up call from God of some sort. And uh, I think 20% 20 of non-Christian respondents to the same survey said that as a result of what's going on, they've started reading the Bible or they've looked for sermons or teaching online about the Bible, um, which is pretty remarkable. And so, you know, we see not just in the C.S. Lewis quote, and I could just, you know, rattle off some idea about, you know, hardship drawing us closer to God. Well, there's, there's some statistics for you that actually it does happen. And um, I think, yeah, in, in situations like this, God is trying to get our attention. And whether that's uh, at a personal level, um, whether people need to get their hearts right with God and be at peace with Him, you know, and as a Christian, I would say that's through Jesus, knowing Jesus and having an assurance of eternal life through Him, or whether that's on a national level, you know, if we've abandoned so many of these values that shaped our culture and our freedoms and the things that we hold so dear. A lot of that stuff we now take for granted, but you trace it back and and not to say Christianity was the only influence, but gee, Christianity played a huge role in the development of our freedoms and our education and our uh, healthcare system and just our worldview that says everyone's 
precious. Everyone's mm. life has value and worth. And if as a nation we've started to abandon that, then I think it's pretty fair to say God may be trying to get our attention through something like this. So mm. I would say on the one hand, he's still on his throne and nothing can shake him, nothing can set him off his purpose. And uh, the world is going to be okay. We got through two world wars. I'm sure we'll get through the coronavirus. And that's not doubt, not to downplay the suffering of certain individuals. I know that obviously some 60 Australians, unfortunately, have um, succumbed to this. Mm. And there's many around the planet. I don't know what the statistics are now, but it's sort of around 100,000 or more maybe um, have lost their lives. And so that's not to downplay that. But God is always in the midst of our suffering. I love yeah. Psalm 23. It's the one that's often quoted at funerals, I think. Yeah, um, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. What it says a little bit later on in Psalm 23 is not that God is going to spare us from every deep, dark valley, but though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And that's the key, for you are with me. God is always with us through our suffering. He's not aloof. He's not sort of separated from us. He, in fact, you know, we just celebrated Easter. Easter is all about Jesus, God taking on human flesh, stepping down into creation, stepping down into the world we live in um, and experiencing all of that for himself, experiencing pain and suffering on the cross. So God, the God that we believe in as Christians is a God who absolutely can relate to us because he's been through all the things we have. And, uh, mm. and so we can, in a very real way, say God is with us in our suffering. He's not just sitting on his throne. Um, he's still on his throne, but he's also wanting to be with us and be present in our mess and in our, our fear and our suffering. Yeah. Mm. Look, that, that's, that's really good stuff. Could I, I seek to clarify one point before I have some uh, rabid lefty who might be tuning into this podcast and uh, mishearing that, you know, what you've just said, that God has caused this pandemic as some sort mm -hmm. of plague upon us. Sure. That's not that's not what you sure. have said. And uh, mm. I don't know any serious Christians that actually would uh, would would believe that. Uh, mm. There might be some on there. There's always, there's always a few kicks there's always, out there. There's always yeah. a few kicks. You know, but the reality is that God didn't cause viruses. Um, you know, uh, we know that from Christian theology that in the fallen world, this is where viruses come from. That's uh, right. Sin, sin entered the world and mm -hmm. death entered the world. And yeah. viruses come from from that, that which is against God. Yeah. Um, but as you say, that God works through these things and mm. um Certainly as people now are, you know, in their homes, not distracted by the busyness of the world, and, mm. you know, that's a sad thing because people do like their jobs and get meeting from them. As people are not distracted by that busyness, uh, it probably gives people time to sit and think and reflect on the things that ultimately do matter. Absolutely. Um, family, faith, yeah. uh, the big questions. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm hearing what you're saying. That's great. Yeah, I'm certainly not celebrating the crisis that we're going through and there's all sorts of effects it's got on people, but I totally agree with you that one of the positive outcomes of it all is that, you know, it's it sort of forced us as a culture, as a, a nation to just totally slow down and really consider, you know, all sorts of things that maybe we haven't for a long time, like how much we, we love and value our families and how much we really do treasure our freedoms and how much uh, our faith does give purpose and meaning to our lives and if we don't have that or we're not sure about it, to really search that out and, and know what we believe because at the end of the day, you know, this world and all of the the economy and, and everything that's kind of constantly going on, it's they're all very good things. They're gifts from God but they're not ultimate and um, one day all of that's going to finish up and we'll head into retirement and we won't be able to do all the things that we've done and then we've got to start thinking about death and, and the next life. 
And mm. why, why not start thinking about it much earlier in life? Why not start thinking about it now? And I think yeah. that's one of the positive thing that, things that has come out of all that's going on. Yep, indeed, indeed. The Conservative One Podcast with George Christensen. Now, um, you wrote in a recent blog these words, beginning in the 1960s, we have conducted a massive social experiment in the West, casting off our Christian conscience. We told ourselves and each other that the highest happiness would be found in living for yourself so long as no one else gets hurt. Decades on, we are now experiencing the fallout of it all, broken families, an epidemic of sexual abuse and domestic violence, addiction on a scale never seen, and a mental health crisis that even our biggest budgets, budgets can't afford. That's pretty poignant stuff. You, you, you see that um, this drift that we've had since the 1960s, and I would argue actually it's been a lot, lot longer than that. I don't know if you've read the book, The Benedict Option, but... Uh, I have. You, you actually recommended it to me, George, and I, I loved it. I loved it. I read uh, that second chapter multiple times and I've actually um, been working on a book myself, which uh, is inspired by a lot of different stuff. But yeah, his um, Rod Dreher's uh, second chapter in that book is absolutely brilliant. He does trace um, the foundations, not only foundations of the West, but I guess the beginnings of our cultural culture wide turning away from god and i yep i picked the 1960s but you're right it does go back a, a lot further yeah the 1960s was so, a critical point where it seemed to uh rampant individualism and consumerism joined together and away definitely gone and it sort of accelerated uh mm. things from the, the move away from i believe the fundamentals of life so yep. how do you see this this trajectory of western civilization and western culture Great question. Um, I guess on the one hand, I, I wouldn't want to be the person that's too fear-mongering because I know that that can be a, a fairly easy position to take and uh, it's, it's easy to whip people up into fear based on all this stuff. But I, I think that a lot of us Westerners have just not stopped to think about the journey we've been on as a culture, mm. uh, as a civilization, uh, where we've come from and, and also therefore where we're going uh, and I am absolutely convinced from a lot of reading, a lot of study that Christianity and the Jewish faith too, but particularly in places like Australia and America, the Christian faith has played a huge role, a massive role in all of the things that we hold dear. Even the way that our government is constructed is in many ways inspired by, you know, Moses and the elders in, in Exodus. And the idea of the rule of law is essentially copied from, you know, the Ten Commandments, these, you know, these laws that were written on stone and enshrined in the Ark of the Covenant. That governed the nation, not some king, ultimately. So, yeah, and, and education, the idea that everyone should be able to read and write, that was, and it, you know, it was inspired by the reformers who, who first of all translated the Bible from Latin, which people in everyday Europe couldn't read, only the priests and, you know, the hierarchy of the church could read. They translated that into the vernacular languages and then they said, well, how are people going to read it? We've got to teach them to read and write. And so, you know, this whole idea of universal education was in many ways inspired by the Reformation. So, so many of these things that obviously the government, you know, plays an important role in now um, in terms of education and healthcare and that sort of thing. But if you trace it back, it was not originally the government that, you know, launched a lot of these things. It was, it was churches, it was Christians. And then when it kind of reached a scale the churches couldn't handle anymore, then obviously the government has stepped in. And I guess as we've secularised, there's been a lot more government involvement in those things. 
But yeah, so the foundations of, of the West, way more Christian than most people realize. And if that's true, I guess my thesis in, in the book that I'm writing, and it probably hides behind or hopefully What's not hides. Kurt, do you have a working title for the shit? Can you let My us working in? title is actually the same as my blog, which is Cross and Culture. And okay. I'm still working on the okay. subtitle, but it's going to be something like, you know, how Jesus can save the West from its unrest or something to that effect. Uh, and I, essentially what I'm, what I'm wanting to illustrate is that we, if it's true that our Western culture, our Western civilization has been so shaped by Christianity, then really the more that we try to cast it off and the more we, that we disparage that faith, then the more we can expect that the things we enjoy about the West may fade with time. And I believe mm-hmm. there's a lot of evidence to show that that's already happening. And so um, not that it's all going to come crumbling down in a day, but I guess we've got enough evidence, you know, based on things like domestic violence rates, things like, I, I guess, there's, there's suicide, there's mental health, there is family breakdown, there's divorce on a scale we've not seen in previous generations. And so many people, even who are listening, have been touched by these things. And yeah. um, I, I really think that it's, I don't know, it, it's very easy to criticise Christians for saying, oh, you know, Christianity is a solution to everything and I'm, I'm not sort of trying to paper over things and pretend that, you know, just have faith that fixes everything. But I would say on a civilization-wide scale, a lot of that stuff is us feeling the effects of our departure from Christianity and the meaning that it, that it gave us as individuals and as a culture. And I, I just don't think there's any escaping that. You're probably a little bit more optimistic than me, and this might be a political suicide for me to say, but I, I do believe that we are in the fall of Western civilization right now. I, um, you know, as much as I would like to believe that uh, Jesus can save the fall of that civilization, um, I actually don't think that it's why Jesus came. Uh, I think that it will fall, and uh, we're living in it, actually. I mean, you've just got to look to see the level of bloodshed, the level of violence uh, Mm -hmm. that has befallen the world, the Western world, in the last 100 years. Uh, Mm. You have a look to see all the social ills that are happening now that that are things that have never, ever happened to the level that they do these days. And Mm. fundamentally, the breakdown of, of human relationships, I mean, the relationships that by their nature should be the most compassionate and most Mm. loving. And uh, we're seeing those relationships being destroyed. And, uh, you know, I I think the trajectory is only one way, sadly. I don't know there's Mm. anything that actually can can save it. I think that something new will replace it. It's not like that's the end of the world. That's just the end of a civilization. And, you know, you can Mm. look throughout history uh, obviously, the one that people turn to the most is the Roman uh, civilization, the Roman Empire. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, when uh, civilizations move away from their moorings, from their foundations, when things get too comfortable, uh, too debauched, um, mm. then uh, there goes that civilization. And I think that's what we're living in. Um, yeah. Well, look, do you care to comment on that or shall we move on? Yeah, I mean, where you said that, I mean, I, on the whole, I do agree with you and I think we are heading on that trajectory and, and uh, the Roman Empire in particular, what people point out uh, was part of their downfall was decadence and just this sense of living for myself, hedonism. It was different then. We've got more, a more individualistic take on that, but it was very much pleasure-seeking and um, power and wealth and, and all of these things that, you know, us as humans in every civilization, every age are so drawn to, you know, as vices. 
And I, I see a lot of parallels. In fact, I have blogged on this. I'd need to look up the title. But uh, I think it's something like, are we living in a new dark ages? And I compare a number of, you know, traits of, of the, you know, the dark ages to what we're experiencing now. And um, so I largely agree with you. I would maybe challenge you and say there is one thing that can rescue us, um, rescue our civilization from this kind of ultimate crumbling, and that would be revival. Um, and we have seen that in, in many times in the past in Western history, um, not that that's taught in schools, I guess, unpopular to teach on it. But, you know, we've had John Wesley and George Whitfield and many other John, uh, Jonathan Edwards in America. Billy Graham came to Australia in the 1950s. That was maybe a smaller revival than uh, many of the other ones previously. But when, when people realise that there is more to life than just this life, and that there is a God they're accountable to, and not just in a negative sense of I've got to, you know, behave and be a good little boy, but actually there's a God that gives me purpose and meaning to my life, and and He's the reason that I should treat everyone with respect and dignity because they're all made in His image, and and I now have purpose and meaning in my own life. That reanimates a culture, and we have seen that. We've seen, you know, England was really in a terrible place before John Wesley came along and at the same time as as him roughly was uh, William Wilberforce who helped put an end to slavery and there was there was a great many Christians in that era who had a huge impact on their culture and a lot of them were engaged in politics and social stuff and and were you know trying to help the poor and they're very community-minded but at the heart of their message was we've got to turn back to God individually and as a nation and when they did, you know, England thrived and uh, a lot of the good things that we would all agree have been fantastic about England's history came out of that era. And so I, I do believe that it is possible for us to reclaim, I guess, do you want to say the greatness of Western civilization? The best parts about us mm-hmm. um, is if we were to turn back to God wholesale. But that depends on a lot of individual hearts. So, Amen, brother. Could I ask then though as the trajectory of western civilization and christianity diverge uh, which they they have unless there is that revival you're talking about i think they'll continue to diverge mm-hmm. you've written about the clash between christians traditional christians i guess you could say and mm-hmm. the and the culture we live in mm-hmm. uh, is i mean that to a lot of people is a bit difficult to take because um, they go to church every weekend Mm-hmm. They don't see any persecution, but I think differently. I'm pretty sure you think differently on that. Mm-hmm. We do see some forms of persecution. It's not, you know, martyrdom and and bloodshed, thank goodness. But what forms of persecution are you seeing and how is this divergence between culture and Christianity going? Where is it leading? Yeah, I mean, I've I've looked at the persecuted church or the underground church, which I guess often we think of places like China, um, Indonesia, who's a close neighbour of Australia, and uh, many Middle Eastern nations. And certainly before the fall of the Berlin Wall, the you know the Soviet Union, there was a lot of persecution of Christians there. And so I've read a lot of biographies of of believers from that era and from those parts of the world. And I've spent a couple of years in Indonesia, where you know the place I went to was really affected by religious violence and uh, and some would even say genocide of, of Christians in, in the area that I uh, went to. And so I guess I'm, I'm a bit reluctant to use the word persecution too quickly of Westerners. But certainly, in fact, I would have said that maybe two years ago. But then last year happened. And uh, for those that followed the stories, probably that would have been just about every Australian. Israel Folau was absolutely dragged through the mud by the media uh, and by a lot of online commentators. And 
I think he probably expressed his faith in a quite a prickly way and, and could have gone about it better in certain ways. Yeah, and absolutely. maybe he's not the most articulate guy. But and and there was there's a, you know differences that I have with him in terms of belief too. But he was at the end of the day just expressing his personal faith. He was doing it in social media in private. I mean, it's a public platform, sure, but he was doing it you know not on on the books. He wasn't being paid to to be at home tweeting or whatever. And he was absolutely maligned and fired. yeah, well, he was fired. Yeah, he was fired, and he had his career destroyed and his his means of income taken away. And all of that, basically, at the end of the day, for quoting the Bible, for paraphrasing the Bible, right. and uh, and a lot of people just loved it. A lot of, um, and I know most Australians probably sided with him in the end, even if they didn't just didn't agree with him. They they probably felt for him and thought this is not the fair go of the Australia I've grown up in. Um, but there were a lot of players in the the chattering class, I suppose, who who just couldn't get enough of it and, and loved seeing what happened to him. And then, of course, we also saw what happened with Margaret Court. Um, and she also essentially for her Christian views uh, on a whole range of subjects was, you know, really treated unfairly, was not given equal treatment in terms of uh, her 50th anniversary um, with the Australian Open. So, yeah, it is a, really... A new, a new form of deplatforming, you know. It's now exactly de- dethroning our sports stars simply because they don't... Uh, conform to the uh, leftist group think that they're supposed to conform to. That's exactly right. And in Australia, you know, our sports heroes, we, you know, maybe more than any other nation, we really lift them up. And so it's really significant that two of our greatest sporting heroes were deplatformed, cancelled, whatever you want to call it, simply yeah. for being Christians. And so even though, you know, Israel Folau has savings and properties that he can, you know, fall back on and it's not like it's un- incomparable to the persecuted church in, say, China, but it is, it is still persecution and we should be wary. This is the canary in the coal mine and we should not quickly shrug off this stuff and, and say, oh, he's a big boy, you know, um, he, you know, he's famous so he'll be fine. If they can do it to big sporting heroes like Israel Folau or Margaret Court, they can do it to little Christians, um, to little people, not even Christians. They can do it to anyone if, if you don't agree with them and their worldview. And so, you know, th- there is some really concerning stuff going on there for sure. Yeah. Well, that is very concerning stuff, and I guess that's why we're looking at the uh, prospect of a Religious Discrimination Act or something that's uh, legislative that enshrines religious liberty and religious freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, that may be a discussion that we have on another occasion. Yeah. For now, can I end with this question? Uh, mm. The question is, if you were Prime Minister of Australia for a day, what's the one big decision that you would make? Wow. I've never been asked that question before and I've never considered it. Probably any decision, as a, as a Christian, um, any decision I make wouldn't be particularly popular. But one well, of the things... You're only going to be for a day, so it doesn't well, that's matter. That's true, so I can run away and no consequences. <laughs> that's good. I mean, the, the whole right to life discussion is is a huge one and... You know, we have just over the last two months, we have shut down our economies in the West. Mm. We have totally restructured our lives uh, and we've done, you know, we've, we've taken very drastic measures yep. to protect people because we value their life. Mm. And in Australia, unfortunately, only uh, 60 or so have um, succumbed to the coronavirus. Many more could have. But we have, you know, made radical changes to our lives and we've potentially crashed our economy and done all sorts of crazy stuff because we value life. Mm. And yet, 
in Australia, some 80,000 to 100,000 unborn babies are killed every year. And this is just, it's unfathomable, unfathomable to me that we, that we can. I'm going to, I'm going to cut in there and just say that, that I'm actually very ropeable about this uh, Mm. entire matter. We have, we have cancelled elective surgeries in which um, some people are actually suffering and Mm. and need that elective surgery at the same time, actually. I know this is not where you're going, but at the same Mm. time, We've we've considered abortion an essential service, and it's still going on. I it's mean, crazy. Uh, it, Churches it are crazy. closed, I know but that's abortion clinics going, are open. But, uh, yeah, that, that's nuts. It's nuts. Yeah, um, it is and nuts. I, and I've expressed my frustration about that, uh, and I'm happy to do it publicly as I am now. But anyway, good continue on, on. Prime Minister. No, for no, day, continue yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, good on you for doing that because it takes balls to do it. But yeah, like in, in in America, people are saying the same thing. Churches have been closed because they're not considered essential, and yet abortion clinics are open, and they're still killing people while we're uh, trying, trying to save to others. Save it just doesn't make it's sense. Nuts. And so, um, I don't know. Like, I would do something on on that issue. I think it's just it's an absolute tragedy that so many unborn are killed every year. And I know that the original reasons um, in America, Roe v. Wade, and some of our original legislation, what was argued was. Uh, in the cases, the extreme cases of someone who unfortunately would have been raped or if there's, you know, a risk of life, you know, the the mother's life being taken, they were the reasons that were kind of argued at a legislative level for legalising abortion. And now, you know, all these decades later, they, those particular cases only make up some, I don't know, one to three percent of abortions. The vast majority are made for, um, I know that it's not, it's not necessarily easy circumstances. I'm Certainly not saying that, but yeah, it's a lot of different reasons. That's right. It's abortion on demand, and in you know, right some places, it's, birth in some that's states. exactly right. So, I, well, I mean, it, this is this is one if, of the things that I'm very passionate about. And uh, if I was prime minister for a day and I could run away from the consequences, I would uh, I would protect life in a way that it hasn't been protected in decades. All right. Well, I'd be mm. voting one Kurt Marburg. That's very good. <laughs> um, well, look. Uh, Kurt, I'd love to come back and talk to you again in the future, perhaps uh, closer to when your book's done. We can talk about your book, but maybe I'd love to that. do that. Yeah, well, fantastic. Thank you very much for joining me for this very first edition of Conservative One, the podcast that's defending traditions and freedom. Thanks very thank- much, Kurt. Thanks so much, George. Catch you next time. Goodbye and God bless to all the listeners. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You've been listening to the Conservative One Podcast with George Christensen.